you'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we return this night to Hosea, that first of the minor prophets. And we'll begin reading tonight in verse 8 and go into chapter 6. Here we hear the Word of God. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avin. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I'll make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wounds, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wounds. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He'll come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. I'm sure you, like me, have enjoyed several of the different zoos that our country has to offer. I've been to several, and I've been thankful for most of them. Recently, we were down in Florida, and we went to a big cat preserve. So an organization that takes in just that, big cats, lions, tigers, uh, a few jaguars, and things of that nature. And they receive these animals from zoos or circuses or those that uh, have had them as pets. Why you would have these big cats as pets, I'm not quite sure. But nevertheless, they receive these uh, animals from several different sources. And these are all animals that have spent most of their life in captivity, and so they are unable to go back into the wild. And as a result, you can get up very close to these amazing creatures. And it's very interesting to see, to see how big these animals truly are and how powerful and even ferocious they can be. The time that we went, they were feeding the lions and the tigers, and so the handlers would go into the cage and they had these uh, chickens, these full raw chickens that they would throw in there, and it would hardly take any time at all for these lions to eat these full chickens. And you could see the power of their jaws and the sharpness of their teeth. And they put some of them high up so that these Lions would have to stand on their hind legs, and there you could see how big they truly are. Some of them were easily 10 feet tall on their back legs. 
I say it was all very interesting and enjoyable because there was large fences that separated us from them. Because if those fences were not there, then it would be an absolutely frightening experience. And not one of us would stand much of a chance. Well, in our passage tonight, God describes himself like a lion, an animal that no doubt the readers would have had experience and knowledge with. But these are not the lovable lions in the zoo or on the other side of the fence. No, these lions that the Lord refers to are the ferocious man-eaters that no doubt would strike fear in the hearts of the people in those that were receiving Hosea's prophecy. For these lions could easily tear apart. They could kill and consume. And that is exactly the picture of Almighty God as he comes in judgment upon his own people, a judgment that is justly deserved. And yet God doesn't bring this judgment on them just to destroy or to consume them like a lion naturally would. But as it says, to heal and to ultimately bring near so as to give life. And so we'll see this passage in two points tonight. And it's the two main statements of this passage which seem to be at odds with one another, but we will see how they are reconciled together. And the two points are this, that God will tear and God will heal. First, God will tear. Just to quickly review the context, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been in this book. In chapter 4, we saw that Hosea begins the prophecy portion of the scriptures. Chapters 1 through 3 are a little bit more narrative, and now chapter 4, we enter into the prophecy portion of this book, and it begins with a trial and that of an indictment. And we hear this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the words of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And so you understand very clearly the indictment that is being made that Israel, the northern kingdom, is not faithful. They are not demonstrating their love towards God. It essentially says that they do not know God or do not want to know God. And the rest of chapter 4 and 5, if you remember, is the trial, so to speak, and how God brings his people to the judgment. And the judgment is not only against the people, but against their leaders. Verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. Why? Because they have rejected knowledge. And they have forgotten the law of God. And as a result, because they have forgotten God, they have entered into all sorts of sins. Verses 13 in chapter Four says they have sacrificed on the top of mountains and made burnt offerings on the hills. But this is not sacrifices or burnt offerings to the true God. No, this is to idols and false gods. 
and they enter into sexual sin associated with these gods. The committing of adultery, even, with prostitutes and cult prostitutes. In other words, the evidence is overwhelming. The case is open and shut, as they say. There is no denying it. They are as guilty as charged. And so what comes after a conviction? Well, sentencing or judgment. And that is exactly what we read here at the end of chapter 5, our passage tonight. As the people experience this judgment, it says in verse 6 of chapter 5 that they will seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. In other words, one of God's worst judgment is when he removes his favorable presence and his protection. As they have sought other lovers, God, in a sense, says, well, let's see what those lovers will provide for you. And he removes his favor and protection from them. And this is, as I said, a part of God's judgment and discipline upon the Lord. And as a result, we see exactly what happens when the protection of the Lord is removed, then other nations come and descend upon them. And that is exactly what Hosea is prophesying here. It says in verse 8, our passage tonight, blow the horn and the trumpet, sound the alarm. Why is that? Well, as it says in verse 9, because desolation and punishment are coming. And this punishment is going to be severe. There's several metaphors that are used in this passage. In verse 10, it's described as a flood of water. In verse 12, a devouring moth. In verse uh, 12 as well, a corrosive rot. In verse 13, a festering wound. In verse 14, a vicious lion. None of which sounds enjoyable, does it? It's complete and utter destruction. From the top of the country all the way to the bottom. From the north to the south. In other words, it's going to be a complete destruction upon the nation of Israel. And that's why in verse 8 it says, Sound the alarm in Gibeah and Ramah and Beth Aven. If you would look at your map, these are all cities in Benjamin, which would have been on the south part of the northern kingdom, the north part of the southern kingdom. So in other words, this nation is going to come from the north and quickly go through the entirety of the nation of Israel. All the cities from the north to the south. So much so that Judah on the south will barely have time to sound the alarms. And this is all going to come by the hands of the Lord. Yes, the Lord will use others. He'll use the armies of the Assyrians. But it's not because God is powerless to keep them out from invading his people, it's because he is directing them. And then we read that verse, verse 14. It says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go 
away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. You see the emphasis there, don't you? I, even I, am the one who will do this. God will punish and bring no ease, even though Israel and later Judah will look for ease, there will be none. And in fact, that is why I think it says there of uh, Judah removing the boundary stones because they do not want to be associated with Israel at all. In verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. A landmark would be something that would differentiate land between family. In a sense, Judah is saying, we don't know them. Are we brothers? Yes, but no, we're not going to help them. We do not even want to be associated with them or even be known as neighbors to them. Essentially, Judah is saying, you are on your own, Israel and Ephraim. It says in verse 13 that they might go to Assyria, seemingly those, the nation that is attacking them. And go to their great king, but notice what it says, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wounds. For verse 14 says, I will carry off and no one shall rescue. So the punishment is going to be severe, it's going to be complete, and it's going to be quick. And that is the judgment that is coming. And as a result, there should be fear upon the hearts and the minds of the people that this prophecy is upon. And it's the Lord that will bring, as I said, this punishment. He is the one that will inflict. He is the one that will tear as a lion would tear. There's a movie I remember watching uh, several years ago now. Perhaps you've seen it yourself. It's called The Ghost and the Darkness. And it's set in the late 1800s in Kenya as the British were trying to establish railroads into the interior of Africa. And yet during the night, workers were being preyed upon by lions. They thought a whole herd of lions or a whole pack of lions, whatever you call a bunch of lions. Uh, but they found out later that it was only two lions. But it seemed like there were many. And as much as they tried to prevent it, keep it from happening, these silent killers would come in during the night and they wreaked so much havoc and devastation that the workers began to name them. They called them the ghost and the darkness. And it's a true story and you can't watch that and not see how much dread and terror falls on that camp because of these lions. And that is the imagery that is conveyed here. And that is where I think the prophets are a healthy correction to us in modern Christianity. We stress the imminence and the closeness and the relational aspect of God and as a result his graciousness and his love and mercy, which of course are all true and of course should be taught and preached. And we even see those things in this passage tonight, but they should not be taught or preached at the extent or the expense of God's transcendence and his holiness and his justice. Because those things are very much conveyed in the Bible 
as well. And as a result, we should have a right fear of God. In other words, we should not treat God like we treat caged lions at the zoo, where we know them to be ferocious beasts, but in a sense, we have no fear of them because, well, they're over there and we're over here, and as a result, we're safe. In a sense, when we come to God, we are not safe. We are in God's arena, and we face his judgment, and we are underneath his gaze. And as it says in verse 14, he is as a lion that will tear. Earlier we sang before Jehovah's awesome throne. When Isaac Newton originally wrote that song, he didn't call it awesome throne, he called it awful throne. And we have changed it to awesome because in our modern context, we only know awful to be something that is bad. But what Newton was trying to convey with the aspect of God's awful throne is that it's full of awe. That as we approach a holy God, we should have that sense of dread and that sense of fear. Even as we sang in there, know that the Lord is God alone He can create and he destroy. He can create and he destroy. God has the power and the right to do both. But second then, we see that God not only tears, but God also heals. The one that afflicts is also the one that binds up. Why does the Lord do this? Why does he bring judgment and destruction upon Israel? Is it to afflict? Is it to punish? Does he delight in devastation? No, look at the end of chapter 5, verse 15. It says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Notice the reason why God sends this judgment and this punishment. He allows them to endure this, and then he stands back, as it were, to see some of the miseries of their own sin, to understand the afflictions and the punishment, so that they will once again turn and seek my face, even as it says, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. And that is exactly what happens. That is human nature, isn't it? And oftentimes we forget God when things are good, but we call upon him when days are difficult or hard. This morning I mentioned 9-11. I don't know if you remember back then, but the Sunday after 9-11, churches were quite full. Sadly, that was short-lived, as you can imagine. People forgot and went on their ways, but a national tragedy, terror and fear makes people realize that they're not as in control as they thought. And as a result, they seek spiritual things, perhaps even just temporarily. But those that rightfully seek God in faith and repentance find a God that is ready to receive them back, to heal them, to bind them up. (coughs) And that is what we read in chapter 6 and verse 1. We see the song of the 
repentance. When they come and seek God, they say this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. You see the language there, that there is no denying where the, the uh, tearing and the striking has come from. It has come from the Lord, but the same one that has struck is the same one that will heal. The one that has torn is the one that will bind up as well. And so it's not just tearing for tearing's sake or affliction for affliction's sake. No, it is tearing so that he may heal. Striking down so that he may bind up. And that is true for all of God's people. That through difficulty and affliction, God is never just bringing punishment or judgment. For those outside of the faith, yes, that may be true, but it's never the case for those that are in Christ. God never uses it for punishment. God never uses affliction for judgment upon his own. No, rather he uses it for discipline's sake. He uses it for a purpose to make our faith stronger so that we would have a stronger relationship with the Lord. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. It is for discipline that you've had to endure. For God is treating you as sons. We have had earthly fathers who discipline us and we respect them, the author of Hebrews says. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. And you understand the comparison that is being made. We do not discipline our children or our grandchildren because we ultimately want to punish them. No, we are disciplining them to teach them, to keep them from more difficult and worse things. And discipline and suffering and affliction all works in that way. Joni Erickson Tata, as you remember, who is the paraplegic, calls suffering God's sheepdogs that nip at us to keep us in the flock, to keep us going along the way. She says they drive us down the road to Calvary. Otherwise, we might not be inclined to go. And I think that is right and scriptural. For the psalmist says in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That it is through affliction that we keep God's word and seek God's word to continue to prod us along, as it were, down the way. And this might be your lot right now. If you are an unbeliever, then you have no hope. The judgment that we talked about before is coming. The lion is roaring and he's coming quickly. And your present circumstances, your afflictions in this life might be showing you that there is greater afflictions yet to come and that there is no hope outside of you, and there's no hope outside of God, and so you must turn to him quickly, even this night. But as believers, we too often might think that the Lord has abandoned or forsaken us. 
or perhaps even punishing you or judging you. In fact, there's times we might even think that unbelievers have it better than we do. And think, has God forgotten? Will he bless those that have no fear of him and not us? And none of those things are ultimately true, even as we talked about this morning, that we must be able to defeat those lies, those lies that we can even speak to ourselves. We defeat those lies with the truth of God's word. Is there times that the Lord seems far away? Absolutely. The Westminster Confession of Faith says sometimes he withdraws the light of his countenance, but it's never without reason so that we may be driven back to him, that we may earnestly seek him. These things might be as sheepdogs driving us down the road to Calvary. And speaking of Calvary, we have a beautiful picture of it here in Hosea in verse 2. It says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. How is it that we will be healed? How is it that we will be bind up, bound up? How is it that we'll be revived? Well, on the third day, he will raise us up. Now, Hosea might have been saying that it will be just in a short time, just as he has brought judgment quickly, he will also bring relief for those that turn to him. But in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the light of what he has done, how can we not see a greater illusion here? That it is through Christ's death and burial and his rising from the dead on the third day that we have life. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised up on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And many think that Paul is referencing this scripture in particular when he says that statement, indeed, God has saved us. And he has demonstrated that salvation in mighty ways through the salvation that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and on the resurrection on the third day. As a result, he will never leave us or forsake us. In fact, he'll use all things together for his purpose and for our good. And so we must trust him, do we not? Even in times of affliction, even in times of difficulty, we must see it as discipline, loving discipline to burn the dross and to make pure gold. But it's all because of Christ taking our punishment. And because Christ took our punishment, then we receive no punishment in this life or even in the life to come. The worst that we receive is God's loving and fatherly discipline, which is not something that is bad at all, but is actually good and good for us. And so as a result, we see in verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. What a beautiful charge that is. That just as the original indictment went out that the people have no knowledge of God and my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. So here we see that as they turn back unto the Lord, 
And as we understand it in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through him we have new life, then this exhortation should go out. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. That from that knowledge comes faithfulness and love to him. How can it in the light of what he has done for us? And again, just to uh, shed light on our purpose statement that we have come out with, that Smyrna Presbyterian gathers together to know and worship the triune God. What a blessing that is, even as this scripture tells us to do exactly that. Press on to know the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the light of what God is doing and what he has done through the resurrection, how can we not want to know more and receive his blessings, receive all that he would give to us from his hand? For even as it says here, he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And God pours out ultimately his blessings upon us just as the showers bring forth new life and blessings to the people. And so is the Lord like a lion? Absolutely. Ferocious and fierce. And yes, we ought to fear. But he is also the lion of Judah that has been slain for us and for our sin so that we may be healed so that we may be restored, that we may have life. I will tear and I will heal, says the Lord. And so he has. For on the third day, as this scripture says, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Amen. Let us go to this Lord even now. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, indeed, you are ferocious and fierce, but you are also gracious and good. And Lord, we see all of those things in this passage tonight. And as we approach you, O oh Lord, we approach you with that reverence and that fear that we ought, as well as coming near unto you, for you are the God that calls us and beckons us to come, to turn our face to you, to receive your mercy and your love. And so doing, Lord, we come and receive the gift of the gospel, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we continue to press on to know you more, to be faithful to you, and as a result, to love you all of our days. For we pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.